you know, he also played a Native American flute, and he was down beneath the stands one day before a game, relaxing, you know, playing it, and he claims, uh, you know, that the flute got swatted out of his hands and flew like five feet. A lot of, you know, security guards that we spoke with um, swore up and down that there were ghosts there, particularly Ty Cobb. Um, he was the most talked about, you know, presence, you know, um, him running the bases at, at night to, you know, countering his presence in the hall or, you know, hearing his voice. A surprising amount of players that had actual, you know, first-hand stories or believed, you know, that certain paranormal things were going on at either ballparks or spring training sites or hotels. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host... Tim Benal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Once again, big, big thanks to our buddy Ian for providing the theme music to this week's edition of the program. Stay tuned to future episodes of the show if you want to hear more tunes from BOA Audio listeners. And if you are a listener out there who has music you'd like to contribute to the program, Shoot me a line at boaaudio at hotmail.com, and I'd be happy to give it a listen. Now, let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. In fact, it is actually part one of two installments of the program you're going to be hearing this week from BOA Audio. It is the first half of our baseball doubleheader. Traditionally, we do the BOA Audio baseball special, which you'll be hearing in a few days. I'll talk more about that at the end of the program. Suffice it to say, it is jam-packed with esoteric stars. But I know that a lot of people skip the baseball special, so this year I wanted to try something a little bit different, and I wanted to really try and blend those two worlds together, the worlds of the paranormal and baseball. And I found the perfect guest for that on the program this week, Dan Gordon, the co-author with Mickey Bradley of two books, Haunted Baseball, and Field of Screams, and both of those tomes share tales of ghostly encounters that they were told by various baseball players, whether they're legends or up-and-comers, and both books go beyond merely ghost stories and also delve into all kinds of stuff like curses, legends, rituals, and a whole bunch of other stuff like haunted hotels and stadiums, and that's sort of the areas we're going to be discussing here in this conversation. We're going to find out how Dan and his co-author Mickey managed to get these baseball players to share their ghost stories. We'll hear about haunted hotels and international baseball legends and rituals. We'll learn about Babe Ruth and Roberto Clemente ghost encounters. Dan will also share stories he's heard about hauntings at Detroit's Tiger Stadium and Anaheim's Angel Stadium. We'll also learn about secret passageways found beneath Dodger Stadium in L.A., the Chicago Cubs' strange affiliation with California's Catalina Island, and additional stories about baseball players who've had UFO sightings or psychic premonitions. And, of course, that's just a scratch at the surface of all the areas we're going to be covering here with Dan Gordon, looking at the world of haunted baseball from someone who has spoken to hundreds of former and current Major League Baseball players who confided there supernatural tales. Altogether, it's a fun and spooky edition of the program, which melds America's pastime with the paranormal 
as we explore the world of haunted baseball with Dan Gordon. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dan Gordon, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Dan Gordon first experienced the magic of Fenway Park in the summer of 1975, when his father took him to his first baseball game. With a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, Gordon studied global baseball culture in Japan, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Nicaragua. His writings on baseball have appeared in numerous publications, including the Providence Journal and Fort Worth Star. And he's the author of Cape Encounters, Contemporary Cape Cod Ghost Stories. He lives and dies with the Boston Red Sox. His websites are www.hauntedbaseball.com, as well as fieldofscreamsonline.com. Obviously, those allude to the two books that he has co-authored with Miggy Bradley, Haunted Baseball, and Field of Screams, both available wherever fine books are sold. Be sure to check them out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and throw out the first pitch of the BOA Audio Baseball Doubleheader. This interview was recorded on March 9th, 2011. Dan Gordon talks about baseball and the paranormal on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And in years past, we've done the baseball special, and we're going to do another baseball special this year. Hopefully you're listening to it in conjunction with this special interview that we're doing here. Because, you know, I get a lot of flack from the paranormal buffs who listen to the program because we do a pure baseball episode, and, and it doesn't really delve into the world of the paranormal. So I knew that I had to get this guy here on the program, Dan Gordon. He's the co-author of a pair of really fascinating books, Haunted Baseball and the latest book, Field of Screams. And as I said, he's the co-author with Mickey Bradley. And we're going to be talking about ghost stories and baseball and sort of the world of the supernatural and how it has crept into the world of baseball as well. So it's going to be a very entertaining and enlightening interview, I think. And I'm really looking forward to it. And it's been a long time coming. I had a chance to meet Dan about two years ago and told him to get him on the show, but it's just taking me forever to get it going. So I'm really excited to finally manage to get him here on the program. Dan, welcome to BOA Audio. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. You know, we like to start out with the bio, the background. You know, who is Dan Gordon? How did, I guess I presume you obviously have an interest in baseball and the paranormal. So how did these dual interests sort of cross paths and, you know, how, how did this these interests come about in the first place? I think it kind of was growing throughout my lifetime. I mean, it, I, you know, grew up, you know, with uh, being a Red Sox fan and, you know, under, you know, the the cloud of the so-called curse of the Bambino, um, you know, the idea that the Red Sox were cursed by Babe Ruth for uh, having traded him. And, you know, I don't know if I ever, you know, truly believed it, but you definitely kind of scratched your heads at that time. But I also, um, you know, kind of, I've been studying in baseball, you know, since college. I got a grant called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, and I studied baseball in Japan and Latin America uh, for a whole year. Um, kind oh, wow. of, uh, they gave me $13,000. Um, I've written this proposal to just kind of compare baseball cultures of different countries. And, I, and everywhere I went, I, I kind of, one of the things that always drew me was kind of the superstitions in those places. And it like in, in Nicaragua, kind of the, the voodoo rituals that fans do, and you know even like players do, and you know kind of sometimes jokingly, but sometimes with with some intent as well. You know, and players do get spooked by it. Um, it was kind of a um, 
a rivalry between the you know Pacific uh, side of Pacific Ocean side of uh, Nicaragua and the Atlantic side, and you know voodoo kind of played a part in that. And you know same thing in Japan, you know with uh, all these pendants and rituals and th- prayers that they have, and you know things they do like sprinkling salt to on you know to ward off purify you know uh, off field and to ward off evil spirits and you know kind of things that are interwoven in the culture, but also in baseball kind of as a way to kind of you know protect players and protect their health and and you know so I saw a lot of that there and, and, and throughout Latin America and where I traveled in Dominican Republic and Cuba too and you know various rituals there there, there as well and I came back I started writing about international baseball and then I kind of moved out to Cape Cod and uh, to 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 work on a manuscript on, on international baseball and while I was out there I kind of became interested in the ghost stories and that just kind of you know snowballed and it took me a while to realize that you know maybe I could write a book about ghost stories in in baseball itself so a friend of mine um he's an anthropologist and kind of had guided me along when I first got this grant um and I still you know good friends with him every year we go up to Cooperstown the baseball hall of fame they have a research symposium and we talk about our research ideas and our writing and he he, he had written a, an article on baseball superstition. He's a former minor league player himself, um, played in the 60s, and, and he wrote probably the definitive article on, on baseball superstition. It's called Baseball Magic, and it's been reprinted um, perhaps a hundred times in various article, you know, magazines and journals and things, and keeps getting updated. And, you know, he said, well, you know, he just asked me, well, aren't there ghost stories in, in baseball, too? And you know, you always think of baseball, you think of, uh, you know, the lively stadiums and, you know, a lot of action going on. And, you know, you, you know, you always hear the metaphors about ghosts in, in the game, the ghosts of the, you know, the baseball Hall of Famers are called immortals and, you know, that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, but, to act, you know, I just started wondering whether they, these stories actually did exist. And, you know, I'm pretty, I mean, nobody's completely well read in, in baseball. Um, you know, there's so much written about it. You know, you could in a lifetime you couldn't possibly digest it all. But I, I've, I've always kept up adamantly with you know I'm you know you know obsessed with you know reading about it and and you know studying you know knowing what's what's being written and what's being talked about and watching games and that kind of thing. And, and I'd never heard of uh, you know actual ghost story. And so besides a couple of hotel stories, and, and so I just kind of went at it and, and started like a. Um, I teamed up with a, a, another fellow writer. He, he's also a diehard. He's actually a diehard Yankees fan. Yeah. And you know, we went to school together. And anyway, it, wrapping up, I just we just decided to go and, and just interview players and, and we got credential by by all the teams. Um, and in up to the present, we've talked to over a thousand players and gotten a variety of stories. Oh wow! Over yeah. a thousand players. Holy shit! That's yeah, amazing. I mean, you know, past and present, you yeah. know, major leaguers, guys that, you know, some guys that kind of bounced up and down, but, you know, some superstars as well, so Hall of Famers too. So it was pretty cool. Not every player, of course, had a story, but a lot of players, um, if they didn't have a direct story, they had a, a team story or, you know, talked about a certain, you know, place and the, the rumors they'd heard. Uh, but a lot of players, um, you know, a surprising amount of players that had actual, you know, firsthand stories or believed, you know, that certain things were going on, paranormal things were going on at either ballparks or spring training sites or hotels. And 
Um, you know, so it's kind of, uh, we went at this and just re- recorded what, you know, what's out there and what, what's been said. Now, what were the player reactions like when you, when you approached them to, to ask them about, like, ghost stories and stuff? How that even, you know, <laughs> what was the reception like in, in these initial uh, meetings and stuff? You know, I, I, I thought I'd be kind of laughed out of the locker room when we first kind of went at it because, you know, players are so, you know, kind of stoic and everything. But actually, you know, it, it, it was almost the opposite. I mean, like, guys, um, especially like, uh, you know, the lesser known guys, especially because, you know, they, they love to talk, you know, they don't get much report, journalist time. But like, the, even the superstars, I mean, they, they, they found the question like totally disarming, you know, because it is, you know, we're not kind of going at them trying to dig up their, you know, of their, you know, we're, we're asking them, you know, something that they actually talk about a lot. You know, they talk about, they, they talk about these places, you know, they talk about it on the team buses and they share, they swap the stories and, you know, um, and, you know, some of the stories are really famous, uh, amongst players and, and so it's kind of, to them, you know, it, it, it was kind of fun and like some players, you know, it brought a smile to their face or some players kind of like took me, you know, you know, offered me a seat and started, you know, telling me stuff and, you know, telling stories and, you know, Mickey, my co-author, got the same, same reaction, you know. So yeah, it, it, we were surprised, huh? uh, you know, how, players trusted us and opened up yeah yeah well having you know dealt in the world of the paranormal it seems like you know when someone has those experiences they're always dying to tell somebody their story so and i'm sure it kind of came out of left field no pun intended uh to to have someone ask them about that you know so it was probably like you know here's a great opportunity to finally tell this story that you know that's been sort of uh rattling around in the dugout all these years and stuff yeah, that's a good way of that's a good way of framing that. I hadn't really, uh, yeah. I mean, definitely, yeah. It's kind of, you know, yeah. In some cases, they're, they're kind of like, you know, dying to tell it because, you know, dying. Some players like said to us, you know, they said to us, I want, I want this, I want this book, I want to see this book when it's done because they, they've heard, you know, some of the stories and you know they know that a lot more float around and they just really wanted to know. But the, you know, so some cases, the interview, in, during the process, the interview players were, were grilling me as well. <laughs> and then, you know, some things, you know, players didn't want to know. You know, I mean, we got a whole chapter on on ashes and like, you know, they're they in our first book on baseball and kind of the whole ritual that fans do, especially, but even teams do. And you know, front office folks, there's people get their ashes sprinkled in, in ballparks, and in some cases, you know, the teams. You know, not only do they, you know, permit it, but they actually arrange the ceremony. And um, so, of course, the players get freaked out when they hear about, you know, that they're diving for <laughs> catching left field to be landing on somebody's, you know, grandfather's ashes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but it's definitely, a, they're definitely eager to know these stories, too, so... And and uh, in Field of Screams, you, you detail some of the uh, – a whole bunch of different stories. I mean, both books are just jam-packed with really uh, great stories. Perfect sort of book to pick up now with baseball season starting uh, for folks, you know, who are going to be sitting around watching the games. And there's a lot of downtime during the game, so it's a great book for the uh, for the baseball season. Um, it seemed like having uh, read uh, Field of Screams earlier over the course of this past week, I, I found it really interesting um, – you know some of the some of the stories about these hotels. It seems like those seem to be pretty predominant. These hotels that are frequently visited by you know road teams and stuff like that that have these haunted reputations. Talk a little bit about these some of these stories of the uh, haunted hotels, if you will. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like you said, uh, I mean, like basically in every league, there there is like at least one place that you know, kind of players have trepidation about you know staying in. Um, you know, even in the minors at various levels, and even like uh, in winter ball, like in Mexico, there's a legendary hotel called the Navajo that you know players really hate staying at. Um, but the Fista Hotel, you know, it, it's Probably that and the Vonaya Hotel are probably two two of the most famous in the game. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, like, and there have been like so many stories. I mean, literally, you know, we, we you know, we didn't include all the stories yet because a lot of them are repetitive. Like guys saying like that, you know, things like uh, you know the hearing pound knocking on their walls and the lights going on and off that kind of thing. But like, you know, but yeah, I mean. You know, superstars, guys like uh, Tim Lincecum of the San Francisco Giants, you know, telling us that he he thought, like, literally somebody was, you know, pushing against his door and leaning and kind of bending it in, um, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, Adrian Beltre, you know, saying that, you know, he, he thought there was a, you know, a woman who walked past his bed with, and he could smell the waft of perfume and, you know, and then he felt like somebody pulling out his sheets. Um, you know, just like really, you know, the stories that range from, again, like the, you know, the, the stories you'll hear all the time at hotels, like I mentioned, like the electrical things or banging on the walls to like kind of start, you know, actual sightings of apparitions. And, and, you know, those tend to be, you know, you know, of course, <laughs> the ones that freak out the players the most. Yeah. So at the Fister, um, Fister Hotel had, you know, there's stories about the owner. Owners go about bellmen, uh, bellmen walking around and various things. And, you know, of course it all gets twisted and convoluted and, and exaggerated and it's hard to tell, you know, ever get to the bottom of, you know, you hear from the player themselves and, you know, of course they, they, they would call it, but when, you know, when they try to, you know, you know, come up with theories about what happened and everything like that. I mean, yeah. you, you you can hear like dozens of theories about like people having committed suicide to murders in certain rooms and that kind of thing. And so it's hard to, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's just kind of part of the lore. And, and basically Mickey and I decided early on that, you know, that's the way the, the book was going to have to be because we're not, you know, we're not paranormal researchers. We're, we're, you know, kind of journalists. So we kind of went at this, as as almost as almost folklorist kind of recording like the stories that players have and you know we we got all sorts of perspectives you know we got you know guys we brought in some cases we we you know spoke with paranormal groups that had come into these places but we also spoke with skeptics and you know with people who worked at the hotels and of course sometimes they they try to um you know cover it up or you know for, protect the image of the hotel yeah. that kind of thing um but yeah i mean we got all different perspectives on, on it, but you know, definitely, you know, the Fister had some really wild stories. I was really interested too uh, in the in the chapter on the Japanese baseball because it seemed like the the level of ritual was pretty amazing, and and also the uh, a lot of the stuff surrounding the uh, the team in Hiroshima, which was just remarkable. Sort of how how it kind of uh, the city sort of coalesced around around the baseball team and the baseball stadium there. I mean, uh, as you say in the book, they built the stadium in Hiroshima on Ground Zero where the where the bomb fell. So it's like that was pretty remarkable. Not only that <laughs> that you know they that they sort of galvanized around that, but also that uh, you know such a hallowed ground, if you will, became the site of the baseball stadium. 
Yeah, I, I, I always loved, uh, you know, I've been back to Japan many times, too, and every time I go to Hiroshima, I, I loved, you know, the, the, the ballpark. You know, they, they've actually moved to a new stadium now, so it's not the same. It's kind of one of these more modern, you know, stadiums. But, the you know, but the fans are really into it. I mean, they're, they're kind of really, you know, yeah, they, they do to, you know, rally around his team and, you know, literally, you know, they've been, of all, it's one of the few places where there's been, like, fan violence and fans attacking, you know, umpires and attacking players and that kind of thing, you know, in Hiroshima. But, you know, also just, yeah, there is this sense of pride and that there was a lot of protests when the new ballpark was built that, you know, because people did kind of have this, feel that it was kind of symbolic to have, you know, baseball, you know, kind of, uh, you know, something that's so meaningful and important in Japan, being right at that site, you know, with a atomic dome across the street, the only building that, that remains standing after the, you know, in, in you know, downtown Hiroshima, um, you know, in the, in the river um, itself. And, yeah, um, we did, it was kind of, you know, intriguing that there were lots of, of, you know, ghost stories surrounding, you know, that whole area and players talking about, you know, the river itself and like seeing, you know, stories about apparitions, like people sitting, folks who are sitting, you know, at, at the edge of the, the river and kind of, um, you know, and story of a player who believed that, he, you know, he would see the river as black when it, sometimes when he saw it. And that, was, you know, of course, was the river where, you know, folks, you know, during the after the blast, kind of you know, you know, jumped into the river for relief, you know, their last you know few moments, you know, kind of a little bit of relief, um, and and such, and and you know, just kind of amazing. We got like a perspective of American players that played over there, and kind of you know, they're they're kind of this kind of being a little bit spooked out or you know, kind of unnerved playing at that spot. You know, but in in general, yeah, it was just kind of amazing, and you know, and there are other stories and like folks and like one player, as the team captain actually for the cop, like told us that you know he thought that you know it wasn't just you know the black you know the blasted spirit, but Hiroshima also had kind of a samurai past, and you know some of that may have been kind of what you know he actually thought he had at one point encountered a you know one of those ghosts, team dormitory, so. um Wow. Yeah, some really cool stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the book is packed with cool stories. Do you have like a particular favorite story amongst all the ones you've heard over the years from these guys? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a you know diehard you know emotional you know sappy baseball fan, so I, <laughs> I love the stories where you know um, you know where there's kind of just um, some meaning to it or things like uh, we we had a story in haunted baseball about this Brooklyn Dodgers fan who. Uh, when he was young, his dad took him, you know, he and his dad would always talk about Dodgers, and it was kind of their, their way of, of kind of, <laughs> of bonding and, you know, just like, you know, a lot of, you know, parent-child relations, you know, but, yeah. you know, it was kind of, you know, very distinctive with him, and, you know, he kind of remembers, you know, very vividly one of his most favorite experiences was going to, with his dad's collar, skin, you know, pitching the World Series, and he pitched, uh, you know, shut out, and, you know, and it was you know, it's an amazing performance. And, you know, for year, years and years later, he and his dad would talk about it. And um, one evening, you know, he, he happened to get one day, you know, he became a, you know, a journalist and he secured a, an Erskine ball, autographed ball, and he had put it on his mantle. And um, 
one evening, like he heard like a crash and, you know, and he went downstairs and the ball had, you know, for the first time ever fallen off the case. And, you know, a few moments later, he got a phone call from, you know, saying that his dad had just passed away. Oh, wow. You know, it's kind of, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I mean, we got like tons of stories like that, kind of like the, the field of screams variety things, you know, where people, you know, but, you know, a lot of, you know, freaky stuff too. A lot of stories about Babe Ruth's ghost and people seeing him. You know, and various you know in houses where the roof stayed, or in hotels, or, or ball fields, and even from uh, Babe Ruth's granddaughter, who kind of believes that you know Babe Ruth gives mystical assistance to to her at times. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the weird part too. Uh, that's sort of detailed in Field of Screams is that the legend of Babe Ruth and sort of the idea that these ghost sightings. They, they like in all the various places that he was known to frequent, whether it's in, you know, in, in Massachusetts or down in Florida or in New York. It's like all over the place. There's very, like every place that he, that, that came into contact with him seems to have stories of, of Ruthian proportions, if you will. Yeah. I loved researching that chapter because, you know, I, you know, I kind of just, you know, you get, you know, you're kind of just doing lots of research all over on like where Ruth stayed and where he did and just like contacting folks. And you, you know, sometimes you talk with somebody who, who had had a brush with the babe as a child, or sometimes you, you just talked with folks who just had stories handed down to them. But, you know, and, and from, you know, again, from, you know, Ruth's granddaughter herself, you know, who is also kind of an avid historian about, you know, her granddad and kind of represents the family too. And, and you know, it's just a, really cool to, you know, Ruth was, you know, he's somebody, of course, that, you know, transcended the game. He was kind of, you know, this great American icon. And, and the more you learned about him, the more, you know, fascinating it, it was. You know, he's a very complex guy. You know, everyone knows that he was a tremendous partier and carouser, but he also, you know, did a lot of charity. He kind of, he played, um, you know, he got in a lot of trouble because he used to play, you know, barnstorm with the, you know, Negro leaguers and, you know, things that, you know, that you weren't supposed to do back in, in the day. And, you know, he, you know, had, was kind of advocating for baseball to be integrated well long before the game actually eventually was. So it was kind of really cool to, you know, found out to, you know, and the stories that I heard, um, yeah, it was great, you know, a great chapter to, to, <laughs> to oh, yeah. research. Absolutely, yeah, it was fascinating. And, and it seemed like, particularly interesting, too, uh, we, we talked about the hotels, but it seems like the the haunted locations run the gamut, really, from old hotels to old stadiums to, to you know, the uh, the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. So it's like there's, it's like these, these immortals, if you will, are, are, can be found in all different sorts of places. Very uh, sort of strange like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one of my favorite stories, other favorite stories actually was uh, Roberto Clemente in a team dormitory down in the spring training site for the Pittsburgh Pirates in Pirate City in Bradenton, Florida. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, just the stories of players who felt, you know, spooked out staying in his room and then, you know, some of the ghost stories connected with that. And just learning some of the history of Clemente and, you know, and both there during spring training because he didn't have to stay at that site, he was kind of in his later years, and only you know younger players were required to stay there. But he kind of wanted to, and he was mentoring younger players, particularly the Latino players. And and it was kind of really cool to to hear, you know, uh, you know some of the guys that knew him, you know, talk about like what he did and what he was like, and you know, but at the same time, like share some of these really you know bizarre stories about you know the 
about the dormitory and about the compound itself. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did, were they, was it more sort of like the young guys had the stories, or was it like the old-timers sort of uh, had the longer-lasting sort of stories that have been passed down over the years? It was a, a mixture of both, but definitely the most were the younger guys, and, and that's something that that we found throughout. I mean, we talked to a lot of Hall of Famers, and, you know, first we thought, like, we talked to guys like, you know, Willie Mays and, you know, Al Kaline, and, and generally those guys kind of, like, drew blanks when you, you asked them about ghost stories. Uh, there, are, there were exceptions, and whereas the younger guys, you know, stories are a dime a dozen, and kind of wondered whether part of that was, you know, kind of changes in society where now so many show, paranormal shows on TV, and it just kind of so more openly talked about and accepted, um, whereas before it was kind of, you know, you you, you kept it to yourself maybe yeah. a little more, you know. So, um, yeah, so definitely with the Pirate City. But, yeah, I mean, like one of the cool quotes we got from, a, you know, one of the Clemente's, you know, a player who, who knew Clemente and he became a longtime coach with the, in the Pirates minor league system. He, he told us that, you know, yeah, he wish he actually did encounter you know, Clemente's ghost, it would be, like, great to see him again and that kind of thing. So, whereas younger guys, <laughs> they, they were just freaked out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, it does seem that way with ghosts being uh, so popular nowadays that it might be more fashionable, I guess you could say, to uh, to have ghost stories than maybe back in the day when it would be just sort of something that would be considered silly or that you wouldn't want to admit to being scared by something like that, you know? Yeah, definitely, yeah. We got a longtime listener of the program who's from Detroit, and I thought it was interesting though that once they built the new stadium, they wanted to preserve the old stadium, and then they never, then it just like sat there in disrepair for like ten years. Is that pretty much what happened? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of it was disrepair to uh, you know to the nth degree. I mean, it was kind of like it was it was ransacked. I mean, like you know, it, you know, it, Tiger Stadium. One of the reasons I think they moved was because the neighborhood. You know, kind of had crime was a little bit on the rise in, in the neighborhood um, and stuff. I mean, but it was that was uh, Tiger Stadium. Uh, basically, you know, it was built this opened the same year as Fenway Park, the same day actually. Yeah. Um, and you know, 1912, and you know, basically had such a tremendous uh, history, and you know, it was part. You know, it was such an intimate ballpark, you know, and, you know, Tigers fielded some amazing teams and some great legendary players, you know, from Ty Cobb, you know, on up through Hank Greenberg up to, you know, Alan Tramo, you know, and, and so on, you know, played there. And, you know, so, like, you got, you know, so, like, a lot of players that we interviewed about the stadium, like, always told us, you know, those who had had a chance to play there that it was, like, amazing to have had that, that opportunity to play there and they walked around with cameras and things and um, I remember Tim Hudson, you know, the Maves uh, telling us that, you know, he, he thought it was cool to use the urinal because he thought like Babe Ruth would use the urinal, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, um, but in general, like, uh, uh, yeah, it kind of, it did fall into neglect and, and, you know, Mickey went through there, um, he actually Got a tour, a couple of tours through there. Second time we there with a gentleman from the Motor City Ghost Hunters uh, um, group, and he basically they, you know, the place was in total. You know, there, there were trees growing in literally up in the stands. Uh, um, you know, the field was choked with weeds and you know tiles and asbestos and every you know here and there and furniture like you know 
broken apart and like strewn all over the place. Um, yeah, and you know maybe that added to uh, a lot of the ghost stories that you know some people who, who did work there um, during that ten year span had about the place, but. You know, but a lot of, you know, security guards that we spoke with um, you know, swore up and down that, you know, that that there, there were ghosts there, particularly Ty Cobb. Um, he was the most talked about, you know, um, presence, you know, um, and, you know, anything from him running the bases at, at night to, you know, encountering his presence in the hall or, you know, hearing voices and um his voice and whatnot. Um, yeah, just other bizarre things. I mean, in the security office itself, like guards like talked about, you know, sitting down and like one, one guard actually said he like saw scratches forming on his arm. You know, kind of really bizarre story. But uh, in general, just th- those kind of tales were very common, and you know, it's kind of really cool for us to kind of. It gave us a good, you know, reason to kind of, you know, explore. It's such a great, you know. So you know, great chapter in baseball history at the same time, but also kind of just to get you know uh, you know sense of how you know nostalgic you know folks are there and fans are and you know how the history kind of carries through and that, that that was kind of one of the things that Mickey and I really loved doing was just kind of the idea that you know baseball is so nostalgic and that history kind of you can always feel the history and that you know players who've been dead you know like. 60 years like Babe Ruth are still talked about and, you know, are remembered and people still know their personality. And, you know, there's no other sport sport like that, or perhaps no other, you know, American institution. Um, so it's really kind of, you know, cool to, to capture that. And, and yes, you know, similar stories from Comerica Park where the Tigers moved, you know, uh, uh, you know, similar like bizarre things happening there too. I thought it was uh, talking about ballparks and, and sort of the uh, the moves from one old ballpark to the other. I thought it was interesting because uh, I remembered the story of the guy who buried the David Ortiz jersey in in Yankee Stadium, and I was really surprised reading Field of Screams that he wasn't like the only guy dumping stuff into the <laughs> into the you know into the makeup of the stadium. Like apparently there's Mets stuff in there, there's more Red Sox stuff in there, there's Yankee stuff in there. I guess talk a little bit about about <laughs> some of the shenanigans that were going on during the uh, the construction of the stadium. Yeah, yeah, we got a phone call like in April, I think it was 2009, 2008, I forget. Uh, but uh, it was from the report from the New York Post, and like he told us, you know, you got to keep this under wraps because you know I'm not I'm not going to break the story to, to tomorrow. But yeah, we got this this guy who buried this uh, Red Sox David Ortiz jersey in in Yankee Stadium and, and said he put a 30 year curse on it. So. You know, so we actually, it was kind of cool to actually hear the story before it like broke. And they, once it broke, it was like crazy because it, it just like, it was, uh, um, you know, the Red Sox Yankees rivalry is so, so crazy as it is. And just <laughs> the idea of a new curse born and like of some going to that extent. And yeah, you know, so Mickey and I, you know, we knew when we, you know, Haunted Baseball was pretty out there, but we knew when we were writing Field of Screams that that had to be a chapter. So we just started interviewing, we interviewed him and, and it's, some construction workers and you know we already knew that back when Yankee Stadium was first built that you know in the records of a construction company white I think it's white construction company and they they somebody jotted in the margin that he'd thrown a, a good luck in the in the water pipe you know under, underneath Yankee Stadium and you know you could always say there was already superstition already you know there and they they won that their first World Series that year and then won all the, you know tortured you know, Red Sox fans for, for 
another century, practically. Um, and but yeah, in general, they, they um, you know, we talked to Gino, the guy Gino Castignoli, who, who buried it. And he just mentioned, like, yeah, I know some other guys, and he just mentioned a couple names, and we started talking to them, and then we heard, we talked to more guys, and. You know, it turns out there were lots of guys, you know, as you mentioned, that, that had buried stuff. And one guy, um, you know, he, he told us that he buried uh, the 2004 World Series of coins. The, uh, the Red Sox, you know, broke the so-called curse. You know, he, in all four of the major footings of the of the stadium. You know, so like a lot of things that, that weren't, you know, the uh, the Yankees, when uh, um, they, they found out that, you know, the, the Ortiz jersey was in there at first, they, they you know, Denied it, then, you know, when, you know, somebody, you know, some other construction workers came and said, yeah, we saw him do it. You know, they went in and they, and they actually jackhammered, you know, through like five feet of cement and spent like $50,000 unearthing it, you know, so, but, you know, but still, you know, even though they, they did all that, there's still like many other things buried there that have either good karma and bad karma. One Yankee fan actually, uh, well, actually, a Red Sox fan actually for his friend, he actually buried his, the Yankee fans, Ashes, and big section 208 of the ball. So, yeah, little kind of battleground, I guess, for the soul. Yeah, the yeah. Stadium. Like a supernatural battle uh, between different factions of fans and stuff like that. Pretty weird. Yeah. Now, it, it, I presume then, based on just the just the sheer age of, like, some of these teams and everything, but th- that some of these new teams don't really uh, have the sort of same – sort of traditions, I guess, of, of spirit hauntings and whatnot. You know what I mean? Like, do, do those, do teams like the, uh, you know, like the Diamondbacks and, and the, the Rockies and stuff like that, do they not have the same kind of traditions, really, of, of weird stuff since they're pretty new? Yeah, not as much. I mean, like, obviously, Yankee Stadium and, and Fenway, Yankee Stadium probably has the most ghost stories from the perspective of players. And, you know, Fenway Park has a, in Wrigley Field in Chicago and, you know, a few others, you know, from, more from perspective of workers and, and Dodger Stadium too, from fans. I mean, but like, yeah, there there are newer parks that you know. I mean, like, you know, the, the uh, Toronto. I still call it the, the Sky Dome. I don't yeah. get the, the least. <laughs> you know, they change it every two years. Uh, Rogers Center. I don't know if it's still that, but they they basically. Uh, you know, the uh, player Miguel Batista told us that you know he had had a encounter with uh, um, what he felt was a spirit of a Native American. He he himself kind of claimed, you know, kind of that of you know Indian ancestry. He's Dominican, but the Taino Indians, as his grandmother was, you know, um, you know, descended. And so he, you know, he thought that you know he played also played a Native American flute, and he was down beneath the stands one day before a game, relaxing, you know, playing it, and he claims, uh, you know, that the flute got swatted out of his hands and flew like five feet, you know, away. Um, you know, similar stories from you know other new parks. Actually, you know, you mentioned the Diamondbacks, and yeah, that yeah, that that definitely might even you know very newer than the Blue Jays, of course. You know, and they had a, an expansion team. They they had a. Um, Story, you know, stories from the 2001 uh, World Series um, that we talk about in, in, in haunted baseball. Um, after September 11th, um, there, there were ghost stories from players and from fans about, you know, the spirits those, you know, who, who died at, you know, in the, in the trade towers, um, you know, being present during the games, you know, the World Series um, at Yankee Stadium. But um, also, you know, Diamondback, you know, players like. 
guys like Mark Grace and, you know, thought that, you know, there were some bizarre things happening, you know, at the very end of game six when the Diamondbacks clinched it, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of this wind swept, you know, funnel kind of going along in the field and thing, you know, and just kind of, you know, just some really eerie coincidence. I can't recall exact details, but yeah, we wrote a pretty, um, you know, kind of a, of the timing and the exact time that things happened. But, yeah, you know, players were convinced that something was going on there, too. So, I mean, it's not all, you know, of the, you know, as I mean, it's not all of, like, past players and of Babe Ruth hanging around and that kind of thing. Sometimes it's, you know, some stadiums are thought to be built over burial grounds and uh, Anaheim, you know, it's legendary among players where players feel that that was built over Native American burial ground and, you know, we've got curse stories and tragedies from there that players feel were connected with, um, you know, with that, you know, to, to that fact. So, yeah, um, we have, uh, uh, you know, a few workers at Anaheim Stadium who believe they've, you know, seen ghosts there. And one guy who, we, uh, a long-time bat boy, who even claimed that he would see, like, Native American faces and, you know, bodies within the walls itself. And, you know, oh, wow. You know, you know um, sometimes, like, he felt like they were chasing him down the hallway. So, you know, some so some new stadium teams, too, have the these stories. Yeah, yeah, and in the Anaheim uh, chapter, you know, uh, you guys talk to one guy who's worked there for like a long time, you know, and you almost feel like like that he that he'll end up like perpetuating this when he dies almost, you know what I mean? It feels like it's almost like a self-perpetuating thing where these guys spend all their time in these stadiums, you know, on the overnight or as the as the clubhouse attendant or something like that, and these are some of the best days of their lives. And, and you think to yourself, you know, ten, twenty, thirty years from now, you know, these will be the ghosts of the stadium, if you will. I mean, it, I can imagine that if if I was in those positions, I'd come back after I left and it went to the great beyond, if you will. So you wonder about that kind of thing too. You know, it's like the the joy that many people feel being associated with the game. They don't never want to leave, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so like, it's like, and workers actually kind of express that a little bit, you know, where they talk about, you know, that respect. And what, you know, I mentioned that that boy, and he, he also like, sort of like, uh, you know, even sort of like players and, and ghosts and such, you know, and I has had a lot of tragedies and, you know, connected with that curse too, um, you know, car accidents and, uh, other bizarre things that, you know, players getting shot and killed, that kind of thing. Um, most recently, Nick Aiden Hart, you know, yeah. died. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, he, he mentioned, he's a, he was actually, you know, I mentioned he was a bat boy and one of the, you know, players and former players and coaches that he saw the most was, uh, Jimmy Reese, who was a, a, a former player. I mean, he actually roomed with Babe Ruth once. Uh, but even before that, he he was actually a bat boy back in the 19 teens with uh, you know, with the with the Angels when they were a minor league franchise. So, you know, kind of it was kind of cool that connectedness, you know, um, that you know, and he he didn't express it, but it was just something that you know, Mickey and I were thinking about as we were were writing the book. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like an unspoken thing. You don't want <laughs> you don't want to say to somebody, well, when you die, you're probably going to be hanging around here too, pal. You know, <laughs> have it yeah, not go exactly. over too well. On this day six years ago, some guy in Houston ran over an elderly man while going after a home run ball. And this woman took the law into her own hands and started whacking the guy with her cane. Bravo, honey. Bravo. 
seriously, she should have just gotten up and just whacked him across the face one. And why is this guy sitting there letting her take the heat? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Dan will tell us stories he's heard about hauntings at Tiger Stadium and the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim. I don't think that's the name of the fucking stadium. Arrowhead Pond's not where they play. Angel fucking shit. I really enjoyed the also the uh, the chapter on the Cubs and Catalina Island because uh, it seemed just so strange. It's sort of like this enclave of Cubs fandom on Catalina Island. I didn't even realize either that uh, Wrigley, who owned the Cubs, also owned the whole island, Catalina Island, which was like, wow, this guy must have been doing all right for himself. So but talk a little bit about that that Cubs and Catalina Island connection. Yeah, I love doing that chapter too. Of course, you know, visiting Catalina Island off the coast the coast of LA, you know, just amazing place to to, to go as well. It it's it's really the Catalina Islands, you know, um you know, I guess folks on the West Coast probably know about it, but it's kind of just just amazing you know, a set of islands where they have a lot of, you know, uh, it's mostly undeveloped. You know, there's only like uh, one town, Avalon. Um, the rest of it is just all, all, all picture and like animals that can only be found there, nowhere else. And, um, and yeah, Wrigley, um, you know, he bought the island, you know, kind of as a place to go, but also kind of as a, as a, as he wanted to build it and he turned wanted to build it and turn it into a resort and and one way he he decided to do that is you know he, he owned the cubs it was a part, partially at that time but he had enough influence eventually to you know to bring the cubs over there for for spring trainings and you know he knew that the publicity back then you know um you know the meat back then even much more so than now like you know baseball was was it was it in the media and like newspapers just like wrote, you know, endlessly about spring training and workouts and what players did and what they ate and drank and said. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, they always had the G-rated version of it, but they, they, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, it was, they, you know, so the Cubs trained there literally for off and on for like 40 years, 30 years, I, something like that, um, starting in the 1920s and they really, you know, the fans loved it, and you know when the, every time the team the team arrived by you know they took the train from Chicago to L.A. and there was you know when they got off off on the ferry to Catalina Island, you know the whole town they called off school and work, and the whole town was basically there to greet them. There was mariachi band and oh, wow. parade, and you know the basically the team like would traveled in a float to the <laughs> spring training compound. And, you know, basically the players, you know, back in the day, you know, they they interacted more with, you know, the locals too. And so, like, there was kind of this sense, you know, like, you know, kids would get a chance to, like, you know, catch fungu ball, you know, and it was kind of just, you know, players would give their old uniforms to young kids. And so it was kind of cool. We went over there and I did talk to, you know, a couple of old-timers who were still alive when the Cubs were there. And you know, remembered and shared stories about it. And but there were also there's also this one gentleman who he had actually was a former restaurant owner, and um, he bought the uh, the building that was formerly um, you know it was the restaurant was formerly the clubhouse for the Cubs. It was right across from the ball field, and you know some of the even some lockers back there. And you know um, he believes you know one day he was taking out the trash. And, he saw, um, you know, a ball. He saw a ball player walking past him, and you know, in the old vintage uniform, and 
Um, so it's kind of, that was kind of his experience. And then it turned out like after that there were a number of other, you know, uh, encounters, so, you know, encounters with ghosts. And, and so there was kind of just sense that, that that building was haunted. But, you know, it's just kind of cool to, to delve into that history and to kind of capture, you know, what, what it meant, you know, what baseball meant on this one island at that time. And to this day, there's, you know, even though it's located, you know, off the coast of LA, you know, most of the town are, folks are still uh, Cubs fans and, you know, they still like fly a, a blue flag, on, you know, at the harbor master puts up a blue flag when the Cubs win and, um, you know, <laughs> you know, red flag when they lose, something like that. Yeah, like they do at Wrigley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, beyond ghost stories, did you hear any other sort of like weird tales of uh, anything else paranormal, whether it be like, you know, UFO sightings or anything strange like that, psychic premonitions, stuff like that, that uh, would sort of be also in the in the realm of the paranormal? Yeah, definitely. You know, we had a, a, several uh, UFO sightings. Uh, one one player, and actually he didn't make it in this book, in our, in our next, but he had told us about, um, he's a former pitcher with the Angels, actually. And he, um, when he was in the minors, he stayed at a hotel. Uh, uh, now he was he was in spring training actually in Arizona, and he like remembers that being um, from his hotel deck, um, you know, his UFO was kind of hovering above his balcony. Um, and it turned out to be the night of the that, that famous incident in Phoenix. Oh wow! And, yeah, um, but in general though. We didn't get much in the UFO. Bobby Bobby Cox, uh, you know, the, who just retired, uh, you know, favorite guys in baseball. Uh, you know, he told me uh, about it actually, you know, when he was in Venezuela, like that. You know, when players drove home, they swore up and down that they would see UFOs. You know, and they they were driving kind of like in pitch darkness. You know, Venezuela being third world country. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of you know as close as we got there, I guess. But, uh, yeah, a lot of premonitions, of course. And, you know, baseball, there there are so many, you know, predictions and whether it be, you know, being so-called ball shot or, you know, you know. so, I mean, for every premonition, you know, folk, person who claims a premonition, there's always someone who says that, you know, that, you know, there are always the forgotten ones that <laughs> didn't pan out. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, there were there were things. You know, we had a chapter on that. And one of the stories we had was uh, Roberto Clemente about it. His son having a premonition the night before Clemente died in the plane crash. You know, telling his dad, you know, you're gonna die tomorrow. Please don't get on the plane. Oh wow. Um, yeah. Um, so th- that was kind of cool. But yeah, also premonitions about like cult home runs and things like that too in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm willing to bet like with a lot of I'm, that. Almost every at bat, someone's predicting a home run. So it's like, yeah, you only really, you only, much like regular psychics, you only really remember the hits, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, the baseball. It's you know, there's such a one of the great things about the game is it's kind of leaves so much room for thinking and for reflecting and for you know for theories and, and discussion and and you know, I mean, and the paranormal fits in well with that. I mean, and. It's kind of, you know, the game's got its weird bounces. Every, every game is unique. You know, there's always something new. I mean, you, you know, I, you know, someone, I love it when people say that, like, games are like fingerprints because, you know, you know, again, it's just, you know, every game, you, you always see something, you know, every few couple of weeks you see something you've never seen before. And you're like, <laughs> you know, and 
you know, and there's a lot of things. Like we got a chapter in Field of Screams about um, a minor league game where in, in Key West, Florida, uh, between the Cubs affiliate and the Cardinals affiliate, where um, a ball, a pop-up, um, you know, it was supposedly a pop-up, and it was just going to clear a second base, and it never came down. And you know, 25 guys on the field for, you know, for, for the Cubs and who, who swore up and down. Actually, yeah, it was for the Cardinals players. It was the, it was the Cubs who were playing Cuba, who swore up and down that, you know, that it was, you know, going to clear the infield. You know, players were ducking and, you know, throwing their arms up. And, you know, the, the runner for the, you know, for the Key West Cubs was actually rounded, you know, all the bases kind of haltingly, you know, thinking that, you know, the ball, you know, some kind of play and, and going on. Uh, or, you know, just not knowing what was going on. There's a lot of arguing. But yeah, I mean, so that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's kind of cool that, you know, all these different things happen and transpire and, you know, just kind of a, you know, makes the game, you know, you know, very susceptible to those kind of stories. Absolutely, yeah. Now we got a long time, uh, friend of the program, Greg Bishop. He's a diehard Dodgers fan and I'm, I'm looking here at the back of Haunted Baseball. It says, hidden passageways beneath the depths of Dodger Stadium. What's, What's up with these hidden passageways? What's the story behind those things? Well, um, you know, there there were a lot of Dodger Stadium was built into uh, the hill. Um, you know, it was built into a hill in in an old you know former Mexican American neighborhood. Um, and when the ballpark was built, there was a lot of controversy. Um, you know, there was actually uh, a referendum at one point, um, and ultimately, um, you know, there were folks in in that community who. Who refused to leave and were like forcibly, you know, dragged away. And when the ballpark was built, you know, as I mentioned, it was built into this hill, and because it, you know, kind of goes deep down within. And you know, I got a chance to like see some of those corridors, and you know, work is taking me down, and you know, like even showing me some of the vaults where like old Brooklyn Dodgers memorabilia is. And you know, they they talked about like, you know, ghost, you know, ghostly happenings there, like things like. Hearing their name called out, or, or walking into a vault and seeing like all like the memorabilia like thrown about and strewn about, and you know, in no way it, you know, that it could have been from like an earthquake. It was just kind of the way it was scattered or, yeah. or whatnot. Um, so yeah, there's that element, and and then you know, there's also kind of this legendary story that it was passages built, you know, deep down underneath LA, you know, from the from the LA Library, and actually ending. There was actually kind of a dome-like structure, like underneath Dodger Stadium, and you know that's kind of more um, old um, Native American lore. Um, and there was a guy, gentleman who actually in the 1930s who went drilling for it, and, and he, he, you know, the city stopped him at some point. It got a lot of attention, and there are a lot of st- stories in the LA Times about it. But it was actually stopped before he could get deep enough, and you know, which of course you know raised a lot of theories and. What not, but yeah, yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of legend too about the ballpark, and you know from from that perspective as well, but you know, as for you know kind of you know concrete you know plenty of concrete ghost stories that we got from workers them, themselves to kind of you know you know ground it as well, I mean, just everything from like seeing like misty formation, a misty formation often walking across the field at late at night in the stadium uh uh former uh, concession ca- captain, they call him Cap, you know, the head concessionaire on each uh, level of the ballpark, um, you know, talked about that and, and like seeing that every, late at night when he was doing inventory. 
um, to, you know, workers claiming that they'd hear footsteps behind them or footsteps walking along uh, the, the top, you know, top level of the, the ballpark late at night and some workers using to, you know, work alone in the ballpark, especially uh, cleaning workers. It, it was great to kind of capture that and, you know, capture some of the history there of the Dodgers too. Now, as a diehard Red Sox fan, what's your what's your favorite uh, story related to the Red Sox that that's found its way into the books? I, I loved, uh, you know, talking to uh, Kyle Bean. He's a PA voice for the Red Sox. He's mm-hmm. been there several years now, but he uh, his mentor, uh, you know, in radio and in Sherm Fellow, who was a longtime voice of the, the Red Sox. He was there like twenty five years. Um, you know, they still play his, his voice when they do the, the Red Sox broadcast on TV. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, boys and girls, welcome to Fenway Park. Yep. He's got this deep staccato, staccato voice and, you know, very no-nonsense. And he was just kind of this true character. And how being um, actually, you know, has felt on many occasions that Feller, who died in 1998, I believe, um, is still in the booth with, with him, you know, kind of um, – looking over his shoulder, kind of doing pranks at time, like from making headsets fly or, or announcements disappear and that kind of thing, uh, you know, kind of messing up the electronics. So, you know, so that's kind of a cool story just to get that whole history. And, you know, Carl Bean, you know, he actually, a lot of folks like say that his voice sounds a little bit like Sherman Feller. And, you know, he definitely, you know, still worships him and like touches Feller's pick, Carl Bean, like, knocks on Schoenfeller's picture, which is, like, located right outside the announcement booth uh, before every game and says, you know, wish me luck, you know, Sherm. So it's kind of this connection as well. So, yeah, that was kind of a cool chapter, right, you know, about Fenway. But, yeah, we, we heard some, you know, weird ghosts in the, the ballpark as well. <laughs> now what's been, now, now that you guys have not just uh, the first book but the second book out, what's been the reaction from uh, from the players and from the baseball community, now that you guys are sort of out there with your with your stuff, are you getting better reactions? More, you know, more uh, people want to talk to you, or is it sort of like, you know, how how are they take into this? It's mixed. I mean, uh, you know, sadly, but I mean, it's of course, you know, like a lot of players don't read, so <laughs> no, so unless we made it into a TV show, they might never, you know. But they, but some players have gotten wind of you know, some of the samples of it on the internet. It was kind of hilarious once when we were interviewing uh, some players. I believe they were Pirates players, and they started reciting the exact story that I we had in Haunted Baseball of uh, you know of the Vinoy Hotel and like the, and the stories on the team trainers and various folks about that hotel in St. Petersburg. Um, you know, so sometimes play you know they they get wind of it, but yeah, there are other players, you know, do that. And one of the coolest things and thing that, you know, always, you know, means a lot to Mickey and me is when, you know, players actually, like, say that, you know, yeah, that happened, that was true, or that was great. And, like, Jim Tomei, um, he was a, a key part of a, a chapter in Haunted Baseball uh, where he talked to the former trainer, Jimmy Wallfield, coming back, um, in, in the form, of, he thought in the form of a bird. A lot of players said that they, they encountered this, and that that, that Wallfield kind of hung around for um, like two series for like six games, and then during the memorial service for Wallfield, when there were like 300 players, like in the upper terrace of, of you know Progressive Field, um, uh, you know, kind of 
taking in the service, they looked around, they saw the seagull fly off and, you know, circle the bases and fly off um, and never to be seen again. But, you know, Tomei, like, said to us that, you know, you know, he was, like, really blown away by the chapter. And and that, that that's kind of cool to, you know, when players give that feedback and, like, you know, say that they liked it. So, yeah. <laughs> the other cool part sort of is uh, that, you know, with the influx of Japanese and Latin players, it seems like there's sort of like this melting pot of uh, superstition and, and, and stories and stuff like that, you know, all come together here in the American baseball, if you will, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, you see the guys nowadays like wearing the, the, the necklaces and stuff like that, yeah. that that became popular with the Japanese players. And, and so I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, you see, you see that happening in, in American baseball. Yeah, and even American players that play over in Japan or in Latin ball sometimes like pick up these things as well and you know bring a little bit of that back back with them. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of cool that you know also they they kind of you know that even like Japanese players like picking up some of the American traditions like Okajima, uh, Hideki Okajima with the Red Sox, um, the Red Sox bullpen, and Jonathan Palpa, particularly in '07, had this thing where they called themselves the Pirates, and you know they they had this like plastic parrot that, you know, would sit on, you know, sometimes on Papelbon's shoulder, but sometimes just personally over the players, you know, when they bullpen, you know, relievers before they took the field, they would touch it. And, you know, it was, you know, Okajima was one of the strongest believers, and the parrot was actually stolen um, during the ALCS celebration, and, and you know, I you know, the the uh, bullpen made such a big thing, and Mike Timlin of the Red, you know, Reliever got on TV and actually, like, pleaded, you know, for Okajima's sake and for everybody's to, for it to be returned. So, yeah, um, yeah, so, you know, definitely, you know, it, it's, it is that melting pot, as you say, and it, it's, it's kind of cool. And, and, you know, I haven't really seen, like, you know, players sprinkling salt in, in American dugouts, but you never know. I mean, a lot of the superstitious stuff that, you know, it, it just – you only see you know, like a, on, on TV or read about a tiny fraction of what actually goes on yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are there are certain positions more uh, akin to superstitious uh, things? You know, like, you know, what I mean, like are closers more superstitious than say starting pitchers? Or have you noticed anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I'm not sure about differences between closers and starting pitchers. Probably pitchers in general are, are a little bit more superstitious than, you know, players just because, you know, they, they don't pitch every day, first of all. Um, and, and secondly, um, they're, you know, and so they have a lot of time to, to stew on things, um, you know, and, but also, uh, you know, they, they're, you know, there's just long rituals that go way back. I mean, like the idea that, you know, you, you don't talk to a pitcher before a game, which I always thought is the, kind of a, stu- I mean, Personally, I think it's it's kind of you know counterproductive because you know your players uh, get so wound up, you know, nervous before a game. So like not t- talking and relaxing probably makes it work. But yeah, I mean you see it in the clubhouse. You're not supposed to go up and talk to a guy. But like you know when they're pitching a no hitter, you know you're not supposed to mention it. And like you know guys, it, you especially see like you know when a pitcher's throwing a no hitter, like that other guys will like literally like slide down the bench and like give. Further away, you know, rather than supporting. It. I mean, it's just, it's just part of the superstition. And uh, but you know, definitely the hitters have their rituals too. And and it was really interesting. I mean, like one one of the players that's most renowned, you know, for 
you know, in, in public eye, and even among players, as being superstitious, no more gotta see power. Yeah. You know, and he had, you know, this really, you know, he pulled on his glove and, you know, you know, put his foot in, you know, drew, drew something, and you know, right, stepped into the plate. He stepped up to the plate. Um, you know, and I, you know, when I interviewed him, I asked him, like, well, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking to players and I mention are you superstition you know, what superstitions they have and they always say, joke like, Oh, go talk to Nomar you know, and yeah. <laughs> he kinda like chuckled when he said this and he says, Well I actually don't regard them as superstitions. I actually, you know, pick them up as a routine and everything I do it has a has a purpose or was, you know, kind of part of you know, what coaches taught me and kinda of getting me settled into the plate and keeping my batting gloves tight and all this and when you talk to batting coaches, you know they're always the first one to say, you know, like we think that you know these superstitions are great because they they get the player focused. You know that they're you know whether it's a, a superstition or, or a routine, it really doesn't matter. You know the players just stepping up. You know so you know the game, baseball is such a game of you know as I mentioned, it's just so such a bizarre game. I mean, and it's such a game of chance and you know things. You know you could you know, totally crush the ball and it can, you know, land in someone's glove or, you know, um, you know, yeah, broken back rounder that, you know, yeah. goes through, you know, a, a Bill Buckner's legs or something like, I mean, a bouncer that goes through Bill Buckner's legs. So, I mean, yeah, there's always kind of like that, that players always feel like part of the game is beyond their control. So they, they turn to superstition and they, and they turn to, you know, the, these rituals to kind of feel like they have some kind of control still in the game. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, absolutely. Now, we, we all know about the the, the Red Sox curse and, and the Cubs curse, but there are, are there other ones that are sort of like less well-known as far as, uh, you know, teams being cursed or even players being cursed or anything like that? Yeah, tons of them. And, you know, some of them are only known locally. Um, one of them that kind of got broken last year was the, the, the curse of the plaque with the San Francisco Giants. Um, you know, the Giants uh, hadn't won before last year. They hadn't won from 1954, um, which is like the third longest, uh, you know, drought, you know, current drought in, in baseball, World Series championship drought. Yeah. Um, you know, they, and that was when they were still in the, in the polo grounds and, and they had a plaque up in, in the polo grounds. It was 500 feet deep in the outfield. Um, you know, back in the day, even, you know, monuments were, some monuments, Yankee Stadium had that too originally, uh, monuments were on the field in, in the act. And, it was uh, for this guy named Eddie Grant, who was a World War One veteran, kind of like this ordinary player. He was just—he was known for his bunting, but not much more. But he was like a really smart guy. Got his law degree from Harvard while he was still playing. And he, he when he retired, um, he went on. Um, you know, at age 34, he enlisted in, in World War One um, as an officer, and he was in the Statue of Liberty Division. And he went to the Battle of Argonne. Um, rescue the, you know, so-called lost, lost battalion, and he was shot shot in the abdomen and, you know, died instantly. And, you know, in 1921, they, the team put up this um, plaque. But when the, the uh, Giants moved west from uh, uh, Polo Grounds to San Francisco, um, very last game, um, you know, fans swarmed the field, and that's the last time that folks remember, like, seeing the plaque. Like, some people, like, thought one, one of the equipment guys, um, that was still actually with the team back in 07 when we interviewed him, actually said that he, he thought that, uh, plaque was, uh, um, you know, uh, lost in transit. 
but like other folks thought that it was stolen and whatnot. And but like um, you know, starting in the early 2000s, you know, some veterans groups started complaining because the San Francisco Giants never tried to replace the plaque, and they they um, they started complaining, and the team kind of blew it off. And one Peter McGowan, actually president of the team, actually said, you know, wow, well, you know, that was a New York Giants history, not our past. Um, you know, and oh wow. But of course, gradually <laughs> that kind of attitude, and you know, the team continuing to lose kind of just made this theory that you know that that Eddie Grant's you know plaque was the cause of the team's drought. So it's called the curse of the plaque, and it kind of you know over the years, and actually to the point where in in '06 the team finally you know put this plaque left the old dual gate on the you know in near the bleachers. Um, you know, this uh, replica of the plaque, and, you know, so some say that maybe that helped the team to overcome it. But, yeah, there there are a lot of local, you know, funny curses like that, and, you know, um, it, it's really easy, you know, even with the curse of the Bambino, the Red Sox curse, it's really easy to kind of, you know, look back in history and kind of point, like, and say, oh, that, that happened, so that's the cause, that's why the team hasn't won. It just, you know, again, part of the game, part of the, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, a way, way, you know, you know, it's hard to know what's paranormal and what's just kind of, uh, you know, recreate, recreating history or trying to explain it away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what trying to put order uh, into chaos, if you will. Exactly, yeah. Um, now, this new book, it came out this past year, of course, uh, Field of Screams, and Haunted Baseball came out about two or three years ago. What's next for you and Mickey? Are we looking at a third uh, installment of the series? Yeah, I've got a whole file for, um, you know, I've got to do some more interviewing. Um, but, yeah, definitely could do a third one. Um, I've also got some files for a book, uh, Haunted Sports, and I'm also kind of dabbling in some fiction, too. Um, you know, I've got uh, this uh, family that came over from Russia in the early 20th century and started um, And, uh, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, really interesting how they kind of, you know, resurrected this, you know, piece of land and made it made it into something and kind of the characters are kind of cool so i'm kind of working on that as well so i don't know exactly what's going to come first uh, i'm kind of just like got several things on the desk and i work on each one you know as it when, comes you know, along i kind of yeah. go back and forth yeah but uh, um i'm kind of eager to, to try a little bit my hand a little bit so what so you so you're looking at just a whole but you say like a, a ghost in other sports, or just paranormal in other sports, or what? what what's that all about? Yeah, I mean, there, there are you know, baseball I think has more more of these stories than any other sport. Football has has a number. You know, football has a long history as well, and kind of you know there are you know these stories like the ghost of the Gipper with you know um you know with no you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there are a few you know stadiums that you know. I've, in our research, we found over the years, and um, so yeah, there could, uh, another whole yeah, there could be a book on that, um, but it's still in the works, and you know, it, it's part of the the uh, you know, not me not knowing exactly what's going to next is budgetary as well, because of course, you know, to do a book on haunted sports, you get, you know, it, all these books cost a lot of money for travel and the research. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like when you interview these guys, did you drive? How, how did you even interview all these different players and stuff? Were you down there like at spring training, or is it like when they come to Boston, you talk to them, or over the phone? How how'd that all go down? Yeah, mostly. Uh, well, spring training was the best place, but yeah, I mean, we did a, a lot 
Boston. Mickey was out of Chicago a lot, so he got a lot of players coming through there with both their teams. You know, sometimes, you know, New York. Uh, um, I I went up to Toronto and to L.A. and you know went to Detroit and you know um, probably a couple of the places too. Off the top of my head, I can't think think of, but um, you know, definitely a lot. Of, I mean, you get a lot of you know former players that passing through in the minors too, and you you catch them. But yeah, so we drove. We put a lot of mileage. On the cars, and you know, I, I, you know, it's a kind of a story that maybe I shouldn't share, but uh, in order to go to LA, like I literally, I got involved in the, you know, Wendy's had these give, giveaway cups um, that um, would, uh, I mean, had these cups, so I actually would climb into the dumpster and get, get these cups so I could have enough money for LA. So yeah, I mean, you, you definitely, you know, when, you know, we, we definitely got around quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta do what you gotta do to get to make, exactly, it, yeah. make it happen. So, now where can people pick up Field of Screams and Haunted Baseball? I know they, I'm sure they can get them on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, you know those those sites online. Probably uh, the regular bookstores, right? You can, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we have our website, uh, you know, FieldofScreamsOnline.com, and that hooks up to you know all all of the those sites as well, and. Um, it's pretty much should be in, in most bookstores too. If not, they can like, get it on order as well. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I highly recommend the books to folks. Like I said, uh, they're perfect reading for this time of year, especially. You know, the, the weather's getting a little better, and you're not ready to go outside yet because it's still kind of cold. But the ball games are on, and it's time to uh, relax in front of the TV and watch some watch some baseball. So it's perfect uh, reading material during the games. So. I have, especially on a rain delay. If there's a rain delay, you definitely want to bust out these books because keep you busy during the uh, the downtime. Exactly. Yeah, I got to catch one of your your baseball shows. I haven't. I, I didn't realize you had that tradition. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We do a traditional uh, paranormal experts come on and have their picks for the year and talk a little bit about their hometown teams, that kind of stuff. So that's cool. why I've tried to. Uh, I try to tailor the episode here a little bit towards some of those guys. Uh, I think we've covered just about everybody's home team. You got any Kansas City Royals stories? Not a direct one. We had these rumors about the George Bridge, George Brett Bridge being haunted, but I haven't. We haven't gotten any witnesses to talk about it. Um, it's just kind of this belief that you know there was a car. Some of the pedestrians got hit by a car on that bridge. But yeah, no. Yeah, it's yeah, no, no directly. Um, well, that's in keeping with the with the with the state of the Royals, anyway. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, they've they've been haunted. I mean, I used to love you know, love following the Royals because they had some amazing teams back in the Brett days. Well, Dan, it's been a it's been a very entertaining conversation here with you. I really enjoyed hearing some of these stories and talking about how you uh, you and Mickey tracked down some of these guys and, and found out more about these stories. And we really just scratched the surface here, folks, because we're talking about two. You know, 250-plus page books uh, out there on these great ghost stories and supernatural stories related to baseball. So, as I said, we've just scratched the surface here. There's tons more to discover in Haunted Baseball and Field of Screams. Highly recommend them, and they're perfect companions for the baseball season. So go out and pick them up. And, Dan, thank you once again for coming on the program. We'll definitely have you back on the show in the future, probably next year for baseball season, to uh, talk some more about some of these supernatural tales related to baseball. Oh, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Appreciate having me on. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. 
Big, big thanks to Dan Gordon for coming on the show. Check out his websites, hauntedbaseball.com and fieldofscreamsonline.com. And check out the books, of course, Haunted Baseball and Field of Screams. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got a few different issues in the till, so let's just dive right in. First of all, I want to give a big thanks to Brett, Rick, and Ian, all of whom wrote to me about an issue we're having with the iTunes. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you've gotten around the problem. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you are. But somehow iTunes is messing up the feed and listing the last two episodes in out of sequence from the rest of BOA Audio. I've looked at it. I've tried to figure it out. I'm hoping it's an issue with iTunes that settles itself soon. If people know how to fix this sort of thing, get in touch with me. I could always use the Insight. Uh, that's about it, really. So the best advice I can give to people who are listening right now, obviously, you're hardcore listeners. You've figured out how to get the show. But the best advice, really, I should post this somewhere where people can actually read it, is always to check with BOA Audio first. I don't trust iTunes. I don't even like it. But we use it because we have to. Preferably, I would like it if people just grabbed the show right from BenAllOfAmerica.com because that way I know for sure it is there. Nonetheless, we got to fix this iTunes issue, so shoot me a line, somebody, if you know how to fix it. I'm going to keep looking at it and trying to figure it out. Hopefully, we'll get to the bottom of it this week when we put out this episode and the baseball special. That's part one of listener feedback. Part two is a guest suggestion. Comes from Mark, no hometown list. He says, I don't know if you heard, but just a few days back, Lloyd Pye unveiled some new information about the DNA of the Star Child Skull. I think that he would make a good guest. Signed, Mark. No hometown listed. Thank you for writing in, Mark. I'm well aware of Lloyd Pye and the Star Child Skull story. Part of me feels like I've heard it all already, but then a part of me now, when I think about it, doesn't know really anything about the Star Child Skull. And since we're sort of delving into the peripheral of the esoteric this season, there's a good chance I will investigate the Star Child Skull. Just because I don't believe in it, necessarily doesn't mean it's not a topic we can explore here on the program and i may end up coming around on this star child thing once i look into it a little further so very good suggestion mark i like this one since it is right on the fringes of the paranormal the third and final email this week is sort of an odd one kind of one of those emails i wanted to share as an example of the strange communiques that get sent my way here as the man behind boa audio very weird one. Um, it is a guest solicitation from someone who wants to be a guest on the program. Um, and just something I really just was like blown away by and, and sort of stuck into the file here. It comes from Ludmilia Kozakova in the Czech Republic. And here's what she has to say. My name is Ludmilia Kozakova. On my website, A Window into Space, you can get basic or even scientific information. According to the level of your knowledge and understanding, about the high galaxy civilizations. You can even communicate with the beings who broadcast. As people usually need my help with activating the crystal, it can happen that you will not see, but for sure you will feel energies which don't come from this world. The civilization, Entry Point Andromeda, is ready to create a signal language and start an official communication. Best regards, Ludmilia Kozakova. And the website here for Ludmilia, I'll be fair, I'll list it here so folks can check out her uh, communiques with the other beings. 
The website is www.amezdas.cz, and that's spelled A-M-E-Z-D-A-S dot C-Z. So, there you go. A Window into Space, Ludmilia Kozakova. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how I would even explore that, or even if I would want to. Czech Republic, that's far away in and of itself. I'm very skeptical of channelings. I'm, I'm just completely blown away by this one. So, wanted to share it because it was like, wow, you think you get weird emails. This is a strange one. And the perfect one to uh, use to close up the BOA Audio listener feedback for this week's edition of the program. Big thanks once again to Brett, Rick, and Ian for bringing the iTunes issue to my attention. Mark for the Lloyd Pie guest suggestion and Ludmilia Kozakova for getting in touch with us and getting our attention here on her communications with the high galaxy civilizations. If you'd like to be a part of future editions of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, here are the means to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And the final method is a little bit more interactive. It is, of course, the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Check it out. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, so follow me, befriend me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd love to hear from you on there. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the program, so allow me to tip my cap and offer sincere thanks to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our newest columnists Bruce Pretty and Tony Morrill, and, of course, our webmaster Jeremy Boston. That's quite a staff. That has grown in the last few weeks. And if you look at what's going on at VOA, you'll see that the content has grown quite a bit. I'm trying to be more diligent about getting these columns posted. The BOA staff is contributing tons and tons of stuff all the time. It's getting hard for me to keep up with them. And you'll see that if you head over to BOA. We've got an all-new Grey Matters, an all-new Paranormal Apostate, an all-new Esotericana, and an all-new Fortean Ramblings, plus an all-new Medusa's Ladder. So just jam-packed with stuff and more on the way from the BOA staff. They're doing amazing work, folks. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now, normally this is the part of the program where I turn to you and ask you to make a donation to BOA and or BOA Audio, but this time around I want to talk a little bit about a big project that I'm working on with my buddy Paul Kimball of Red Star Films, and this is an actual film that we're trying to put together called Beyond Best Evidence, The UFO Enigma. You're going to be hearing more about this in the weeks and months to come here on BOA Audio because I am really backing this project in a big way. It is going to be crowdsourced. It's going to be funded by people out there like you, listeners and supporters of the esoteric arts, if you will. So instead of asking to make a donation to Benall of America or BOA, please this time around think about making a donation to Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma. You can find links to that at Benal of America or just go to Indiegogo.com slash UFO, I-N-D-I-E, 
geogeo.com slash UFO. No donation is too small, and this time around, all donations come with a whole bunch of different extra bonuses and stuff like that. It's hard for me to explain here, but they're quite elaborate, and the higher you go in a donation, the more perks you get from Paul and I as we make this film. Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma, as I said, we're going to talk about it a lot more in the weeks and months to come here on BOA Audio. Paul Kimball will be on the BOA Audio Baseball Special in a few short days, and he'll be talking about it there as well. So for right now, just head on over to Indiegogo.com slash UFO or go to Benalla America and click the link, and that'll get you all the info you need on this exciting project from BOA and Red Star Films. Instead of next week on the program, allow me to say coming to you later on this week, it is the 2011 BOA Audio Baseball Special, easily the lowest rated edition of the program each season, but we're going to keep doing it as long as there is a BOA Audio. Thankfully, there's a lot of folks out there who do tune in, and you're going to be excited about this year's installment, I'm sure. We've got the usual suspects, Lauren Coleman, Jason Offit, Adam Go-Rightly, Paul Kimball, and Greg Bishop. Tried to track down Rich Dolan, but didn't get a chance to. He's been traveling around a whole bunch of places this year, and it's been hard to pin him down. And I've been just super crazy, as all you folks out there know. So we didn't get Rich Dolan on the program this year. We'll try and get him back on for the 2012 BOA Audio Baseball Special. Plus, we're going to welcome the winner of the BOA Forum's Baseball Prediction Contest. He goes by the name of League Minimum, but in the everyday world, his name is Greg. And he'll be on the show to represent the BOA listeners on the BOA Audio Baseball Special. Overall, obviously, it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of laughs. It is a lot of laid-back, sort of behind-the-scenes discussion with a whole bunch of folks in the world of Esoterica. So if you like that sort of thing, tune in and just get a feel for what it's like when we're hanging at the bar. Now, I know some folks aren't going to tune into the baseball special, so allow me to quickly plug the episode coming up to you next week, and we're going to be trying real hard to get it to you next week. By popular demand, we're welcoming back Tracy Twyman to BOA Audio for an in-depth discussion of the economy and also how it relates strangely and chillingly to alchemy. This is one you're definitely going to want to check out. Very creepy stuff, very enlightening stuff, very lengthy conversation with Tracy Twyman. That's coming at you, hopefully around April 17th or 18th. So tune in to BOA to get your hands on that. And on that note, I'm getting mush mouth, so let's wrap this up, folks. That does it for this installment of BOA Audio. Thank you once again to Dan Gordon. Thanks for all the folks out there who contributed to listener feedback. And obviously, big, big thanks to the hardcore BOA Audio listeners out there listening to me right now. You guys are the best. I'm very excited to see the spring beginning and i'm feeling really recharged lately my friends and i'm looking forward to what we have coming at you in the weeks and months to come and all that is thanks to your support thank you for making boa audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist until next time this is tim and all thanking you for listening and signing off <laughs>